you're listening to The New Paris. In the time I've run this show and published The New Paris, specialty coffee has moved from a far less exotic and unfamiliar commodity in the city and across France. The city's leading roasters have helped that along, for sure, and continue to demonstrate the importance of transparency in the industry. To talk about some of the initiatives he's putting forward, I'm joined by Belleville Brouderie's co-founder, David Flynn. Hello. Hi, Lindsay. Obviously, people who have read the book have seen you in there. You and Thomas Leouf, your partner in crime, as they say. Um, and, and obviously, I've been following your career and the and, and the sort of evolution of specialty coffee from the very beginning. Um, and, and a lot feels like it has changed. Um, are you happy... Just to get this started, are you, are you happy with the direction that the industry is taking here in particular? Yeah, I think it's fascinating to see how coffee culture in Paris has changed and how well, I got to Paris, I guess, 10 and a half years ago. And over the last 10 years, things have changed very dramatically. And I think it's I think it's interesting because in Paris we don't just have sort of cookie cutter specialty coffee shops. We've got a lot more diversity in terms of the ways specialty coffee is being presented, mm -hmm. and I think that's amazing. It um, wasn't like that at first, though. I think there was a lot of the same kind of Aussie, you know, totally. copy paste jobs. And and I think some of the blame for that can be laid at my doorstep. Why? Well, because you know <laughs> I, the first cafe I opened in Paris was Telescope. Which was, you know, at it, least... That felt to me like it did... Well, okay. I mean, perhaps there was elements, but it, it, to me it felt very Parisian. Well, I'm glad that came through. Yeah. But, I mean, the, <laughs> the bare bones of it were... It was essentially a coffee shop, but we tried to have a little bit of a Parisian feel. And so I, I think seeing that diversity is what's most interesting to me. I, I think obviously in, in Paris, we have an amazing cafe culture right. in terms of the spaces and the history we have cafes dating back hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. We, you know, there's everything that goes into it. And so not losing that in the move towards specialty coffee is something that I think is really crucially important. And mm -hmm. I'm really excited to see specialty coffee moving into more spaces over time. So, so different types of spaces that aren't strictly for coffee, you know, just coffee consumption. They might be hybrid spaces. Absolutely. And spaces that are traditionally French. Because in the beginning, uh, it was mostly people from other places who were bringing right. good coffee to Paris. But that's so. what you did with La Fontaine de Belleville. Exactly. Right? That Trying was the to, idea. Right. And, and not, it hasn't been done really since you did that. I mean, it hasn't been, you know, a model that's been explored the way it could have been. Well, having done it, there's maybe reasons for that. Uh. <laughs> It's complicated um, <laughs> because you're going against sort of systems that are in place. Um, it's easy to run a traditional cafe when you buy all sort of commodity products. Mm. It's a lot more complicated to run when you want to buy all specialty products. So I think it's I think it's complicated. But you know what we've seen is not people replicating the Fontaine model, but more places that look like La Fontaine deciding that maybe they can have better coffee. And we've been seeing that more and more. We've got more and more traditional Bresleys saying. Okay, maybe we're going to keep everything else the same, but we could we could make an effort on the coffee. So I okay, think that's so really it's a start. And would you have expected more to have changed in Paris, or do you think this is sort of like things are going as you may have anticipated? That's a great question. I think, I, I mean, when I started, I was twenty-two, and so I think my <laughs> notions of time were maybe not the same that they are that's now. True. And yeah. I think also, you know. 
France is a place that changes slowly. And there are things about that that are really amazing in the sense that we, despite the fact that there are lots of supermarkets, there are still butchers, bakers, um, fruit and vegetable stands. And I think that's all because France changes slowly. And so, mm-hmm. you know, compared to the U.S., certainly it's changed a little bit more slowly. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Okay. Maybe that's just because I've been here 10 years now. No, I mean, I think I remember early discussions with you um, and even some other people in the industry were saying, you know, it's a, it's a question of education, right? It's, it, it, at least traditional consumers of coffee that haven't been exposed to specialty had to sort of like retrain their palates, right? And so that's a process. Absolutely. And I, I think the interesting thing in France, and it's still happening, is that there's nothing snobby about things costing more because they taste good. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about France. And so it's actually a really fertile ground, I think, for coffee culture to continue changing and the French to drink better and better coffee because I think people are receptive to the idea. I think it just depends on how it's presented. Right. And if you can speak to them on the terms that they're going to understand, right? It's not Absolutely. expensive for no reason. There's, you know, a story to back it up. Um, you just released a coffee certified pesticide free. Um, and I'm curious as to why it was important to you to have a label like that. If you've already been working with farmers and producers that were already not using pesticides. So what was sort of the thinking behind this? So I think one of the interesting things about coffee as a product is it comes from somewhere far away. And um, it means that there's a little bit of like a trust gap between the producer and the consumer. We can imagine going out, like we could drive an hour out of the city to a farm Mm -hmm. and see cows or chickens and buy those products and see how it's happening and, you know, essentially be able to trust it because we can see it with our own eyes. We can't do that with coffee. I mean, I can post videos online. I can show people where we're working, but there's always a gap of trust. And I think... There, you have to find ways to bridge that gap. So the most common and the most commonly accepted is organic or bio right. coffees, um, which for different reasons poses certain problems, uh, particularly for the high end of the market um, because of some of the diseases that have um, come up over the last few, well, now it's actually more like 10, 15 years with climate change. Um, it's made it very hard for producers to organically farm and um, not and make money. Mm. It's kind of at the end of the day because when you go into a bio store the, or an organic store, the amount of money you pay for a bag of organic coffee is not very high. People, no, it's not. People aren't interested in paying that much more for just the fact that it's organic. So farmers have a really difficult question to make. And, they, and for us, seeing them, we want a way to sort of transmit that, to bridge that gap of trust. So there are only so many ways to do it. Um, either you ask them to certify organic, which opens them up to lots of costs mm-hmm. um, for the certification, also for sort of the work of staying organic. Also, all organic inputs are almost uniformly much more expensive than other similar inputs. And they're then going to have to uh, open themselves up to risk of diseases. Right. And all of that for an amount of money that's really small. But we still want to incentivize producers to do that. And so we thought, well, okay, what are our options other than organic? And what we came up with was testing the coffee, Uh, actually taking the coffee, sending it to an independent lab and testing it for pesticides. Um, Because No, go ahead. Go. I, I think that 
at the end of the day, I, I shop at organic stores. Mm -hmm. So I am that consumer to a certain extent. And what I want to know is that people aren't putting lots of pesticides into their ground and also that right. I'm not going to be then consuming them right. on the back end. Mm -hmm. And so what we thought was, okay, well, let's test it and then let's share, let's use the internet to share those test results with the end consumer as a means to bridge that gap of trust. So each of these bags has, with the label, has a QR code where uh, a consumer can scan and immediately find all of the test results. Yes. So we tested these coffees for, I think, more than 200 different fungicides, meticides, arachnicides, all sorts of pesticides and products. And you can scan that QR code and you get the test result and you can see for yourself what is in these coffees or rather what is not mm -hmm. in these coffees. So this is a label, though, that you created it's brand new. I mean, you initiated this. We initiated this. And, okay. it, you know, for now, I would love to be able to do this on a larger scale with an independent body. Um, but for now, we initiated it. And we're rather than relying on an independent body, we're relying on an independent lab to uh, to show these tests and then transparency and the Internet. So what so the primary difference between a pesticide free label and an organic label is that the pesticide free doesn't require these farmers to necessarily overhaul their entire farming method. Yeah. I mean, well, okay. It's the organic thing is kind of complicated. I know. I know. Cause, Cause I, I read what you wrote on, on the website and it's true that, I mean, you hear this often with, with wine production too, you know, it's not an overnight fix. And, you know, I think in consumers minds, they also have there's for whatever reason it's, it's like, Oh, organic is better. Organic tastes better. And I think, not everybody's willing to sacrifice, yeah. you know, I, I think one the, or the other. The easiest way I can explain it is by telling the story of a producer we've worked with in the past and okay. his experience with organic. So he's in Costa Rica and he is a huge, huge fan of organic and biodynamic farming. He is like a champion for this. Um, and he sells into multiple markets. His name's Ricardo and he sells into multiple markets in Japan, the U.S. and Europe. And three years ago, he, or four years ago now, he dropped his organic certification. And this is someone who has chickens running around his farm to fertilize, who is doing everything right. And who, you know, I asked him one day, what do you want people to drinking your coffee to know? And his response was, I want them to know that this coffee will never make them ill, that it mm. will be good for them. So this is mm. someone who cares enormously about health and the health of his soil and his land and the product. He's extremely engaged. He dropped it because it was such a huge administrative burden. Because basically we think organic, and I know in my head, I didn't, I don't need to really think about no, well, what no. it means. No, no, no. I mean, oh, vaguely, you know what I mean? I don't think about the process that it takes for these people to uphold such a status. Sure. And I mean, I think in most of our heads we think, oh, well, they're just testing it and then that's that. But actually, the way it works in most cases, there, there can be some testing, but the way it usually works is it's a financial audit. Mm. They audit your finances. They see what you bought. They check to make sure there aren't any sort of like pesticides that are not allowed lying around your farm. And then they will add up what you bought to make sure you've bought enough to be re-injecting, and they'll make sure that you haven't bought things that you're not supposed to buy. So at no point are they actually testing the soils or they, the trees? They can. They have the opportunity to test, but that's not the main hmm. way by which organic is working. And now that's not against organic, but what it means is the burden for a farmer 
in terms of administrative burden is, is quite high, specifically because he's selling into three markets. And so that's three different organic certifications with slightly different. Okay, wow. So, it's a, so he was like, I want to farm organically, but I want to farm organically without having this extra financial burden for which I'm not even really making any more money. Right. Because he's selling high quality coffee. And he's the like, margins I, are low. Already. The margins are already yeah. low, and he's like, and the risk is already super high. So he dropped it, and his idea was, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create my own label, and he created it, and he tried to get other people on board. But the problem is, you know, for us talking to the consumers, how do we deal with a manifesto written in Spanish? Right. How many people? How many people are going to read it? Um, but the this project actually came out of that discussion because he said, "Well, I know it's good. I test everything. There's nothing in it. There's no pesticides. I know it." And I said, "Well, that your manifesto. I'm not sure we can take that to people, but the fact that you have test results that is powerful." And then you went in and backed that up with your own test. Exactly. So then we. This is where it's taken two years since that conversation. This is where we ended up. So is this going to be applied to all of your coffees? How, what is sort of the next step? Because right now it's on, it's just one. It's two. So we actually started with two producers in Honduras and we started with them because we knew that they weren't applying um, any pesticides. Now I, I will say they are, you know, they're not completely organic in their practices. They do use some fertilizers. Now they choose those fertilizers very specifically based on sort of soil analysis um, but they are using some fertilizers, um, but they're not using pesticides and they're not using sort of herbicides. They're cleaning mm-hmm. their farms. And so this is a way to value that and to also encourage more people to to do that. I, I think we often think that this is a we make it into such a black and white thing. Right, and right. I, I think it's important to push people towards doing more and more rather than just saying. It's organic or nothing. Right, right. And so are there other roasters in the world that have gone down this road or are you sort of pioneering something? Uh, for now, I guess we're, pi- I'm always careful to say we're pioneering something because who knows? Well, those are my <laughs> words. Those are, you can blame me if it comes back to bite you. Um, for now, I think we're the only ones I know doing this. Okay. I mean, really part of the reason we were even able to do this is because of our relationships with producers. Cause right. I was able to say to our producers, we would like to do this. Um, are you okay with it? Cause it's a new thing. And, um, so what about this producer in Costa Rica? Is that coming then? Uh, I think we will try and do that this year. So we did this last year and now we're starting to, I mean, we wanted to see if it matters to people because if it doesn't, if it doesn't bridge that gap of trust, like it's a nice thing to do, but right. it doesn't really matter. But well, what's the f- early feedback? The early feedback is really good. People are excited about it. I mean, I think you're seeing a movement already in France towards other types of responsible farming with mm-hmm. like, I don't know if you've looked into the Haute Valeur Environnementale, the HVE label that they... Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. yes. HVE. So there's, there's a movement, I think, towards organic not being the only means by which we can... Well, and you hear also, you know, uh, raisonner, la pêche raisonner, you know, it's not... It's, there are these other sort of categories that you mm-hmm. might be able to, you know, bring forward and, 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 and raise awareness around. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, I think we're looking for ways to do that. And I, I think transparency is the most interesting way because you want to be careful of greenwashing things, too. No, the, you can't, the, yeah, the, the, that will bite you for sure. Exactly. So I, I, we, we we're starting the rollout carefully and we're choosing who we're doing it with and we're trying to see where we're going. So earlier you mentioned climate change and um, 
Mm. That's obviously, you know, we hear a lot about that impact in wine um, and how that could completely change the course of the wine we're drinking in, you know, 10 years, 15, 20 years. What has been the biggest consequence of climate change in your in what you've experienced going to these farms uh, for, for coffee harvesting? Uh, uncertainty, I think, is is the biggest thing. It um, Each year is different now. Uh, these are places where generally you can be pretty sure of what the weather patterns are going to be year on year. And coffee actually is a bit finicky as a plant. Hmm. It doesn't, it needs water in reasonable amounts at certain points of time. Then it needs no water at other points in time. So it needs, or little water at other points in time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's quite finicky. And now you're getting rains coming at different parts of the year. You're having flowerings happening at different parts of the year. So what we saw this year I was there two months ago and we saw a lot, like in Honduras, the harvest had come super early, way earlier than anyone was ready for. And what does that do to the bean itself? It doesn't necessarily impact the bean itself. What, what it causes is knock on problems. So for example, some of our producers at Benamin, one of our producers, he, it, the rains came, it, the harvest came early and then there's usually rain in January that made his farm inaccessible to pickers. Ah. So he had lots of coffee. It was ripe, but he couldn't get anyone up there to pick. So he had coffee sort of rotting on the tree. Oh, geez. Other people, I mean, a lot of it has to do with picking um, and whether there are pickers to pick at those times. Right. But you or, also mentioned that some of these diseases have emerged as a consequence Absolutely. As well. So there's also, I mean, I, so we did a bunch of interviews with producers when we were there on video that we're going to be releasing later. Oh, exciting. And it was interesting because we asked them, okay, what's your biggest challenge? And I would say 90, we interviewed like 10 people and I think nine out of 10 said uh, La Hoya or the rust, uh, coffee rust, um, mm. which is a fungus that's been around for a long time, but it took off again in Latin America. It had been pretty much eradicated and took off again Gosh, I'm, I should have looked this up before it came, but... Uh, Don't worry about it. <laughs> probably like eight years ago, eight or okay. nine years ago. It's probably been 10 years that it's been, or maybe a little less than that, six years that it's been But still, going. this is a progressive This return. is a progressive thing, and yeah. it's uh, it's very difficult to manage. You've got only a few options you can fumigate, or and other than that, you can keep your trees healthy by fertilizing and managing your farm. Right, so it goes back to the question of... You know, yeah. it's not possible for necessarily all of them to go organic for, you know, a host of reasons. Well, right. Organic is becoming at the higher altitudes is very hard to do and also make money. Or it's not that it's impossible, but you're just at a very big risk for coffee rust completely destroying your farm. Right. So, you know, already the producers in the coffee chain are the most at risk in their generally poor countries. And so it's adding layering risk on top of risk. So... What we're seeing with organic is you're getting more organic further down the mountain where people plant uh, varieties that are resistant to rust. Unfortunately, those varieties often don't taste as good. Is that so, like sort of the, I mean, it's not Robusta beans, are they? Or it's are they? generally um, varieties that are Arabica crossed with Robusta. Okay. Um, so For those who don't know, I mean, the Robusta bean was I mean, in, in West Africa, especially where France originally right. started bringing back coffee. They were the Robusta bean, which grow in low altitudes and are generally less, I mean, they're more disease resistant and, and they're cheaper, but they are not very Exactly. And so, so Robusta refers to a couple of different um, species of uh, coffee. Um, but generally you get these crosses that are like Arabica. So Cat Timors are often what we're, 
what they'll get called, the varieties. Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't taste as good. Um, So that's where you're seeing that. But I mean, one of the things you're seeing is people, especially the governments or the coffee associations in these countries are really searching for new varieties that are resistant and also have great cup profile. And I mean, that's something that probably is going to be essential if we're going to keep having great coffee going forward. So are you worried, because I know people who work in, I mean, I don't personally know them, but you know, you read stories about the chocolate industry being very much at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a concern for you with, with coffee, how it, how it will evolve in the, in the future? I think certainly. I mean, I think coffee. I think coffee is a is going to be affected by climate change, and then we'll see in what ways. I mean, I think a lot of people are putting a lot of money and energy into finding ways to to keep coffee alive in in good ways. And I, I you know, it's ironic that in the middle of all this, the price for coffee, the commodity price, is is below the cost of production in almost every country. So it's there's still really a learning curve though, right? Cause I mean, even the people who could afford to buy better coffee and who generally appreciate better things, it's still that conversation you have to have about like, well, why are you consuming something that you wouldn't consume sort of the equivalent in wine or in other products? So like, why are you making this exception in coffee? And, and it's complicated. I mean, this is part of the reason to, to circle back to the label. This is part of the reason we did that is because it's a really comp, a lot of people are telling a lot of stories and I think it's easy to get lost in what the actual difference is and what the actual, you know, one of the, we did this in the aim of transparency. We're also going to be putting out a transparency report about the price we pay for coffee. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I don't think people really... You guys are going the way Veja goes. I, I like it. So. I mean, we... we you know who they the, are. Yeah, we work for them. Right, right. That's true. Uh, <laughs> I knew that, actually. I knew that. Yeah, I knew that. Sorry. Um, but yeah, that's the idea. We're really trying to... You know, it's, it's funny. It's things we've been doing for since we started. Uh, and I guess we didn't talk about them because we were focused on, I mean, you can only talk about so many things. At well, a time. and that wasn't as, um, people weren't as hungry for that information five, mm-hmm. six years ago. Right. I mean, this is totally. becoming a thing that's important now. Yeah. And so I think, you know, we're, we're really trying to take the things we've been doing. I mean, one of the things we started doing when we started off was we said, we want to have long-term relationships with our farmers and I'm, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of. The producers we work, you know, if you look at the last three coffees or, or some of the three of the coffees on our shelves right now, we have Hunapu from Guatemala, Natali Bautista from Honduras, Benjamin Baz from Honduras. These are coffees that, Copacaki from Rwanda. These are coffees that we've been working with for at least six years in every case. And it, and you personally have been to these farms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I know you go on trips annually, right? Yes. Or Yeah. Every year we, we try and visit as many people as we can. Um, and that's... For a lot of different reasons, it's uh, to keep the because you know to keep the relationship up, to try coffees and decide sort of like which ones were which lots we're going to buy, and also to learn new things and uh, and be able to transmit more to to just again help people understand what it's like there because mm-hmm. it, you know it's easy to think of coffee as just the thing in our cup every morning, but it's the, it's the roasted seed of a tropical fruit right. that's grown far far away, and it's a fresh product which people. Yes somehow forget. Um, well, I, th- I'm sort of now been drinking the Kool-Aid, right? So I, I remember that message and I just repeat it to everybody. Um, there are a couple of things I want to talk about before the end. Um, you were recently recognized by the mayor of Paris yeah. for um, the label Fabrique à Paris, which highlights local production and excellence. Um, and I'm going to give a shout out to Mihaela Yordaki, mm-hmm. who's your head roaster. She's mm-hmm. also in my upcoming book, The New Parisienne. Sorry to self-promote, but it's related, totally to, it's related to this and she's incredible. And so 
I saw photos of both of you there accepting yeah. the award. So why was this? Why was this award so important to you? I mean, it's it's still relatively new. It's only since 2017, right? That, they, yeah, that the we, city launched it. You know, we thought it was really interesting to be a part of, and I, I think it, it's starting to gain steam. I hope next year there will be a lot more people who get the label, um, and because I think it's a, I think it's important to celebrate people who are actually actually here doing things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so you was, have to apply for it, and you, you have to apply for it, and, and you submit a dossier, and you have to show that you're an artisan in Paris, um, which, uh, I think is, it's, it's a, you know, I, well, you, you more than anyone know this, it's, it's a special place to, to live and, and, For sure. and work. And we, we wanted that to be reflected and it's very, very cool. Do, so. And so the last question I had, well, actually second to last question, um, because I think this is so interesting and it gets back to your point about, you know, specialty versus commodity product. And you came out almost two years ago, I think with instant coffee. Oh Yeah. Which you're still carrying. We still carry okay. it, yeah. Because I got to say, when I first tried it, I was shocked by how good it was. <laughs> and I also thought that instant coffee was a chemical sort of composition, which is not good. So what is your... I mean, you don't have to give your actual method, but like, what is the secret here? Why... Is it so good? <laughs> I mean, I, I can't, I can't really give away the secret, but um, <laughs> the reason it's it's so good is it's just coffee, and it's just the coffees you know that we work with. So it's not. I mean, it's like anything you put in good things. I mean, it's so the base is already no, better than what other instant coffee makers. Oh, would absolutely. Use. I mean, the base of other instant, you know, instant coffee as a thing started because Brazil had an excess harvest and was like, oh my god, what do we do with this? Oh, interesting. Um, as like a mass producer, or Nescafe, I should say, started like that. And it started previously, I think a French guy actually came up with what it. What a so, surprise. Right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, part of it is doing it in small batches, not doing it in sort of um, large, large batches. And I think the rest of it, you know, is doing it with an eye towards quality rather than quantity. And I think when you change that mindset, a lot of things change. Like if you're trying to make the most instant coffee possible at the cheapest possible price, that's going to lead you to all sorts of decisions that mean you're probably going to end up with a product that doesn't taste very good. But if you invert that and do, okay, we want to keep the most quality at every time, that that leads you down a different path. I mean, my goal in trying it was not to say that it was going to replace, you know, the Chemex no. and the AeroPress that I use and that I would travel with. But like there are certain moments where I'm traveling where, you know, I know I'm going to end up somewhere where I can't bring all this gear mm -hmm. and whatever the person has, you know, the person I'm staying with, which is usually my father, has terrible coffee. <laughs> like some Starbucks horrendous mm -hmm. concoction. Um, and so it really does come in as a, as an interesting solution. Um, but it's also very good. And so I remember being completely yeah. bowled over by this. You know, we, when we did it, I, our philosophy from the beginning has been bringing more people with us on this sort of good coffee train for lack of a better word. We really want the most people we talk about it all the time. We want to bring the most people possible to this product. And so instant coffee was another way to open it up to people. So mm. open it up to people who, you know, there's a lot of people out there who would like to drink better coffee, but really can't be bothered with the whole making of it. Right. Right. Um, or, you know, those moments when you're traveling, I mean, I carry it. Right. So you're, you're, you're all the time. <laughs> you're stepping in like a businessman and, but like in a smart way, like to have yeah. a solution, that's what you need to be doing. Right. If you're going to exactly. fill those needs. So can people who don't, who are listening, who don't live in France, can they be part of your monthly delivery 
They, we don't yet. Well, okay, it depends where you are. If you're in Europe, you definitely can become okay. a part of our monthly delivery. And they get, th- is it two or three bags? You can choose one, two, or three. Or okay. even four now, I think. You can choose how many bags you receive each month. Um, and we send out a different coffee each month seasonally based on the coffees we're getting in. With good info, because I both get the subscription and, you know, I also buy other coffee when I'm out and about. But I, I you know, I get it and I got the one with the pesticide-free label and saw awesome. the documentation you share. So it's it's good so that, you know, you're keeping people aware of what they're about to yeah. you know, And try. we're really working on improving that and make, giving more information. And that's really part of our part of our goal this year. So, so within Europe... Within Europe and then the US you can you can get our coffee, but we don't unfortunately have a subscription because it's it's shipping is expensive. Right, it's complicated. Yeah. Um so last final closing thoughts. Um what do you hope listeners will take away from you know, if they're if they're sort of like mildly interested in coffee or super interested in coffee, what do you just want them to think about the next time they have a cup? I want them to think about the fact that uh, what I said earlier, I want them to think about the fact that it's a seed of a tropical fruit that it comes from somewhere far away and that it's actually pretty, I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead and say magical (laughs) that we get to have this, this product every day and we should appreciate it and we should value it and we should above all enjoy it. Words of wisdom from David Flynn, co-founder and co-owner of Cafe Belleville. Uh, You can find their coffee at uh, their headquarters in the 19th arrondissement. And I'll leave that, the information for that in the show notes, as well as La Fontaine de Belleville. And find them at, is it cafébelleville.com? Cafébelleville.com with an S, because, you know. Café Belleville plural? You no, mean? no ca- café, café plural, Belleville.com. That's been the show for today. Until next time, do listen to all previous episodes of the New Paris podcast, wherever you stream your shows, and please do subscribe. Until next time, à bientôt.